Hello everyone, and welcome to You Scared of This, a podcast where old dudes talk about old shit. I'm one of your hosts, Eli Phillips, and with me as always is my best friend, David Dykus. Dykus, how you doing? Hey, hey, party people in the place to be. I am doing well. I'm excited to talk about something a little outside our comfort zone today. This special bonus episode is one of the more special episodes we've done for a few reasons. This is... Um, not a movie or not a TV show. It's a movie. It's not by Nickelodeon, and it's not Gasp. from the '90s. So we've had a couple of those things before, but never the trifecta of not a movie, not from the '90s, and not from Nick. However, this is this is of course very much within our wheelhouse of. Well, let's talk about that in just a minute. Yeah, tell we'll the, talk, the, the, let's talk about the, the other important thing. Yeah, the the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can't do an elephant sound. <laughs> this is the moment where you learn that about yourself. It's not only like is a this goat. <laughs> the goat in the room. Not only is this a special episode because of what we're discussing, but this is a special episode because we have a guest today, and we're even getting to uh, re-welcome a guest to the show. So with us today, we have friend of the podcast, horror author, and, you know, spiritual member of my own personal midnight society john brell returning to the show john welcome hey glad to be here thank All you for great guy for coming john on brell. yeah yeah we're, we're glad to have you back i'm glad to be back i miss you guys man it has been has it been like more than a year since we had you on it's been like it seems like a long time well this is the well, best time it, to do it because dykes tell the folks what we're talking about well, it's important that you mention our, our, our time away in the wilderness. During the time between the final Freddy's last year, when we finished reviewing Are You Afraid of the Dark, and now that we've kind of come back, there was seemingly sort of a drought when it came to kids' horror anthology entertainment. Uh, you know, we got our hopes up for the Are You Afraid of the Dark movie. It was either canceled or put on indefinite hiatus, but shining like a beacon... <laughs> We had one movie to look forward to that would scratch that itch, and that movie, of course, is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. <laughs> a feature film, let's say loosely, somewhat loosely based on uh, the collections of horror, of kids' horror stories in print form uh, from back in the 80s and 90s. Written, of course, by Alvin Schwartz and infamously illustrated by Stephen Gamel. And John is here with us today because John is a horror author. John has written uh, several pieces of horror fiction, some of which are sort of tied closely in their DNA to the Scary Stories collection. You have a collection of, of your own Scary Stories that are sort of in that Gold style and, and, e and even written or even illustrated in the style. Your, your illustrations and the covers for these look like those from Scary Stories. So there's uh, the Cemetery Gates books and then Corpse Cold as well. Yes, I'll just come out and say it. It's a complete ripoff of Scary Stories and Tell in the Dark. No, just kidding. But no, well, yeah. Well, someone had yeah. to carry the torch after the last book came out in 1991. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the torch was uh, unlit for a long time and we came, uh, we came around and uh, Joe and I were huge fans of those books, like, insanely huge fans of those books growing up. We, I remember like taking them out from the library like, a million times back in the day, and um, uh, I think my mom wouldn't let me wouldn't let me buy them, but I guess I snuck them out, snuck them around or something. But 
uh, yeah, and then we decided to make these, yeah, Corpse Cold and a few other books. And like you said, yeah, the style is very much like those campfire style um, stories. And the guy, Chad Worley, he's our, like, oft illustrator. He he does art in that, like, very creepy black and white um, Stephen Gamble style. Which I think is amazing. And when uh, when we decided we were going to come back and review this, I immediately thought we needed to have you on since you are... Uh... Since you even sort of have, you know the process of having to sit down and write these types of scary stories to be told in the dark. I do. I do. I often tell them, write them in the dark, too. So, I have, uh, there was, there was a period of time where I was, I decided I was going to try and write uh, scary stories. This was probably back in like 2014. And I sat in bed one night writing scary stories, and I looked at my wife, and I was like, I've actually just scared myself, so I'm going to stop doing this for the rest of the night. Oh, wow. And from now on, I'm only going to tell scary stories in the daytime. Right on. Hey, those work. Did you guys see Midsommar? I haven't seen it yet. My wife sings its praise. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it's like the whole, I guess since that's come out, people have been talking about this daylight horror thing. And yeah, um, yeah so yeah. Um, that's a whole genre very year yeah year around the clock yeah daylight horror that could be a podcast yeah, for you guys no, i'm just kidding <laughs> dykes would be very mad at me if i proposed another <laughs> podcast for us to do once right. we're all said and done here right. i'll let you guys handle that one right right there we go but anyway we're going to be talking about the movie scary stories to tell in the dark uh, i think i probably saw it most recently out of the three of us i went and saw it last night because i knew we were recording this today uh so I might not have the most, like, formed thoughts about it, but I definitely have very fresh thoughts about it, and I'm eager to talk about that. Um, do we want to dive right in, or Dykus, do you have any additional sort of trivia or facts that we need to go over before we just start the recap? So the movie starts in 1968 in a small town in Pennsylvania. The first character I think we actually meet is our resident butthead-slash-asshole <laughs> character, an older teenager named Tommy, who we see uh, enlist in the military... Go out drinking with his douchebag Letterman jacket friends, and then go out for a cruise on Halloween night. As this is happening, we're then introduced to our three of our four young protagonists. First, we meet a girl named Stella, who's kind of a macabre Wednesday Adams type. Yeah, uh, she she's looks- she's like every goth girl that you know on the internet right now. Like, she dresses as a witch for Halloween. She has horror movie posters. She likes to write fiction. She's pretty cool. Yeah. That's basically all uh, the people I know on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's my wife and all of her friends. I'm in a, I'm in my wife's office right now, and she made a T-shirt for herself that says "Business Witch" on it. <laughs> we also meet her two best friends, uh, a kind of nebbish, nervous kid named Augie, who's like neurotic and very serious. He's like the dykus of the group. <laughs> let's just call him what he is, which is young Jason Sudeikis. Mm. Works for me. <laughs> And we meet their other friend, Chuck, who's kind of the party animal. We'll call him the Eli of the group. <laughs> okay, they're the Eli and the Dykus. I can handle that. <laughs> so we see these three kids co- uh, communicating with each other. They're going to go out. And then for seemingly no reason, they attack Tommy's car with eggs and fire. And turds. <laughs> and cause him to drive through a fence. <laughs> <laughs> we need to, like, we, we actually, I want to spend a little bit of time on this opening. Um it was not what I expected. I genuinely thought when we went into this and it was like, you know, it immediately says 1964 Halloween. I was like, okay, cool. What's going to happen here is we're getting a flashback to oh, 68, mm-hmm. 68. This peak Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, we're getting a flashback to 
whoever the character is that is going to die and become the witch. And then we're going to fast forward to modern day and meet a bunch of kids who encounter that person's scary stories. And since we even see Stella's scary stories on her typewriter, I was like, okay, this person is going to die and become an evil witch. I'm cool with that. And this just, this opening just kept going and kept going and kept going until finally I went, I guess these are just our characters. Like, it was so montage for a very short time, for a, the beginning of the movie, and then it kind of starts to slow down a little bit once the moment that you're talking about happens. Once they throw turds into a car window <laughs> <laughs> and start egging it. Flaming and turds! Yeah, I was really Flaming kinda, turds. I was really kind of weirded out by the, like, the time period. I was really yeah. wondering, like, sort of... I guess, it's, you know, usually, like, you do a period piece and there's, like, a purpose behind that like period piece yeah and i guess i guess I, I was expecting it to be 80s actually if they were gonna do a period piece just because these books came out in the 80s and yeah. you know the whole 80s nostalgia thing with stranger things and it right. and all that is like huge right now and i'm assuming that's why they actually did at least do a nostalgia thing in general for those reasons but i don't know i just didn't see personally see the purpose of setting it in the 60s other than the fact that people are still still using microfiche and <laughs> right also, we had to have a microfiche scene yeah we'll, gotta we'll have get that. there i'm excited to talk about that <laughs> and also the fact that they could talk about some of those like the issues with like racism and stuff which i guess was a little more i mean obviously people are still racist like crazy now right but i'm just saying back i want to come back to the i want to come back to the politics of this movie at the end because okay. yeah the decision to set this and i didn't when this movie opened in 1968, I just assumed that was when the books came out. I I did not grow up reading scary stories to tell in the dark. So I just assumed, oh, this, this must be when the, the books came out. I was surprised to learn late, later that, oh, they came out in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, this the choice of setting here, it's very deliberate but very unexpected based on, you know, given what they're adapting. Yeah. I definitely think, and we can talk about this more at the end, but I definitely think it has something to do with sort of the vibe of those stories, that they have that sort of like older folklore kind of thing going for them. That's true. You know, I remember being a kid and when people would tell those stories about like guys with hook hands, like hiding under your car and stuff like that, they always made it sound like it was like, you know, a couple of teens going out necking after they'd hung out with their friends at the bowling alley or the sock hop. Like there's something very sort of vintage or nostalgic in my mind about the feel of those types of stories and i guess maybe that could have influenced it the fact that del toro had anything to do with this yeah he probably like True. i'm sure that was partially his influence that was his nostalgia coming through but i feel like maybe important these types to of note stories... this was produced by guillermo del toro yeah yeah i think that maybe like not just in my mind, but maybe there are other people as well who think that the, this kind of story has a certain type of feel. And I, I, I don't think it hurts the story at all. I thought that the 60s setting was kind of cool. But it did jar me to be like, oh, we're just staying in the 60s when, you know, kids could drink and go out driving in their teens and people did the stuff that happens in this movie. It wasn't just legal. It was mandatory back then. <laughs> right. You had to, <laughs> you had to, you had to <laughs> go out drinking and, drive. and throw crap into people's cars, burning <laughs> crap. It toughened kids up. So anyway, our three young protagonists uh, attack this guy with turds. They run away and try to hide in the local drive-in movie theater. They jump into a stranger's car uh, seeking refuge, and it's here that we meet... We meet Ramon. Yeah, we meet our fourth young protagonist, another older teenager named Ramon. And Ramon we... is, is the most fascinating part of this movie, and we'll talk about that more later. But, like, his character 
was in so many ways completely unexpected for me. We'll call him the John Brell of the group. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, I'll relate to I like this character. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Oh, Ramon's a cool guy. Um, so this is an opportunity for us to actually learn about the three other main characters. They introduce themselves, they get their backstory. Uh, we don't learn much about Ramon, because before long, Tommy and his goons come knocking at the door, uh, demanding that the kids get out of Ramon's car, so I guess he can beat them to death with a baseball bat. Yep, uh, he's going also to murder them that, at the drive-in. We also learned that Tommy, the football-playing jock, is also totally racist. He uses a slur against Ramon. Shocked the yeah, totally. shit out of me. This was one of... There are several moments in this movie... You know, I talked about like, oh, I guess we're staying in the 60s. There are a lot of moments in this movie where my expectations that I had going in, I realized were completely like off base and unchecked. Like when that scene happened, I went, oh, this is not this is not the kids movie that I thought it was like. This is a kids movie that is sort of playing by a different set of rules. And I wasn't immediately sure how to feel about it. Like I don't and I still don't know if I am. I don't think they ever do the world's greatest job of addressing the racial racial issues that they present in this. No, I, 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 I'd like to add on to that. Not exactly onto the, the racial stuff. Well, I guess just in general, like the whole tone of the thing. Um, mm-hmm. That Yeah, I, I guess I expected because I, I, I was still just wondering who this is targeted to. That was like kind yeah. of like a big thing I was wondering going into it. And, and even when I left the theater, it was just like, is this for teenagers? Is it for... People who grew up with the books who are nostalgic. I mean, I guess maybe they're trying to think of multiple audiences. But, yeah, I mean, the books are, you know, meant to be for kids to consume. And, I mean, you just wouldn't ever find that, those words in a kid's book. And also, like, some of the violence that's on, depicted on screen was was more uh, graphic than I expected, considering the, the property. Yeah, yeah, the violence is the next moment. We'll, we'll get to that, actually, shockingly quickly. Um, but... There are so many sort of weird tonal elements, and this was the first indicator of how strange this movie is going to be in tone. The kids wisely decide to not get out of the car and get beaten with baseball bats. Instead, uh, they drive to the nearest haunted house. There is an enormous haunted house in this town. And when they get there, Stella kind of explains the lore of the place. There was a wealthy family that lived there. They kept their crazy daughter locked in the basement where she would tell scary stories to the kids that would wander by. And, of course, they go creeping around the house. They discover a hidden chamber at the bottom where this girl was kept, and they find her enormous book of stories. But wait! Tommy and his gang have shown up to uh, continue antagonizing them. Tommy uh, intimidates them, locks them all in the basement, proves that he's not just a racist, but he's also a total misogynist by throwing his girlfriend down a flight of stairs into the basement and trapping her there with the kids. Is this moment attempted murder on his part? Because he throws a young woman down a flight of stairs and then locks everyone in the basement of an abandoned house. And he's ostensibly just going to leave them there to die, right? That is exactly what he's doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me kind of like what a Stephen King like character would do. Yes. Like a greaser would do. Like they're like in Mm -hmm. even even Stephen King movie. It's like greasers aren't just bad. Like they will kill you without any thought. Yeah. Yeah, that is the that is the exact sort of tone of the Tommy character is is a Stephen King small town like Dairy Maine bully. So it looks like it's going to be curtains for the our four young protagonists, uh, but some unseen force unlocks the door and frees them. Uh, they which I'll the call house. a plot hole. Maybe we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. But like motivation here it's is shaky. <laughs> they escape the anyway. house. Stella takes with her 
the ghost. Uh, the, the ghost name is Sarah, by the way. Sarah is the spirit. Sarah Bellows. Sarah is the spirit that supposedly haunts this house and would tell these scary stories. Stella takes with her the book of stories that she apparently wrote, and they leave the house to find that Tommy has defaced Ramon's car and written a slur on it in another kind of shocking moment. Yeah, later. Yeah, they later, really want the audience to be made horribly uncomfortable. They're really laying it in. So everyone goes home. That night, Stella opens up the book, uh, look, finds dozens of stories written in what might be blood, but then she flips to a blank page and sees a new story being written of its own, like, words just start appearing on the page. The words of a story called Harold. And this story seems to be about Tommy, the asshole who, is, who just tried to kill them. And then in a very creep show fashion, like, as she's reading the story, we just cut to a short story taking place. And I thought that this was how, like, the whole movie was going to go, where each of the stories that's written in the book sort of becomes its own self-contained short film. Um, I really thought that that was going to be more of it, and this is the only time that that actually happens. Um, I really like it. I really like this moment of it, where the rest of the plot falls away, and Tommy's story with the Scarecrow Herald just sort of happens on its own away from everything else um but it's the only one that does that yeah i also like that and that's kind of um kind of where i guess not to show my hand or anything i mean well anyway i like the move put that hand but, away um but i really kind of i also liked that she was like kind of reading the story and it was happening and it was going to kind of break off into its own thing because i think i probably would have preferred more of an anthology approach to the movie mm-hmm. uh, in general um but yeah i guess uh they're, they're probably thinking the big wigs are probably thinking yeah that's not going to work in 2019 so um it seems that yeah. no one is willing to do that approach in their adaptations i wondered if the goosebumps movie would do that i wondered if this movie would do that i hoped that the are you afraid of the dark reboot that is happening on nickelodeon would just be an anthology series like the original and mm-hmm. it sounds like maybe now that's not happening mm-hmm. it seems like everyone is sort of afraid of that type of anthology horror right now for some reason except for cbs with their twilight zone uh, yeah and I love, that's ones. like that i like love that kind of stuff so but anyway yeah, I'm, an, exactly. I'm an old geezer so whatever <laughs> yeah we're out of touch we yeah. we like dated storytelling methods i <laughs> yes. guess that's kind of the conceit of this. This is the halfway point that this movie reached between telling a long-form narrative and cramming in as many of these classic short stories from the books as they could manage. And this is the first one we see. Okay, let's... we got to talk about something. As this story is being composed, we cut to a cornfield where, I guess, Tommy and his family live. Tommy is out making some delivery. He gets lost in the cornfield. He encounters the horrifying scarecrow that watches over the field. This is established... Harold. Harold. This is established in the opening shots in the movie. We see this this scarecrow. Eli and John, you know, we've covered our share of scary scarecrow stories on this podcast. We, of course, had the tale of the silent servant back in Are You Free of the Dark. We had uh, the scarecrow, scarecrow walks at midnight, midnight. <laughs> from Goosebumps. Both of those scarecrows, pretty creepy looking. How did you think Harold compared to these these other two examples? Harold literally has a leather face. <laughs> yeah, he is. This is clearly some kind of cadaver that they have mounted <laughs> to a cross. I carefully looked at this because uh, I was like, "What? What story? Like, there's a costume designer or a prop designer somewhere who made this character, and they put a lot of thought into what they're doing. Like people always do. They must have a justification for why the fuck." 
this scarecrow has this mask. Why does he look like this before the scary stuff begins? Like, it is indeed a mask. It's a, like, you can see that there is a, uh, like a potato sack head under it that's been stuffed. And then you can see that there are uh, elastic straps holding this mask onto it. So at some point, someone put an actual Halloween mask on this scarecrow and just never took it off. That or Tommy flayed someone's face off Hannibal Lecter style and grafted <laughs> yeah. it onto here. He had it common to him. It's his grandfather or something who he also hated. <laughs> so the story happens. Tommy is lost in the cornfield. It seems that everywhere he turns, this scarecrow is stalking him. It eventually just gets closer and closer. It's a very tense, uh, scary scene. Remind it's I saw this movie a couple weeks ago. Remind me how the scarecrow finally does Tommy in. So the pitchfork, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. It's he stabs Tommy him with a pitchfork. <laughs> That's that was the second moment. And John, you were kind of referencing the violence earlier. I assume you were also talking about this moment. Oh, totally. Yeah, I was like, whoa, okay. I, yeah. mean, I was expecting <laughs> scares, and I was expecting tension, but I was like, it's something that graphic. This was like, yeah. Th- I mean, this is like Jason Voorhees levels. Not like the maximum Jason Voorhees, but this is like the minimum level of violence that you get from Jason when he kills someone, or Freddy. Like, this is a person being impaled on a yeah, pitchfork. It's, it's like a wider shot. You see the pitchfork go all the way through his body and come out his chest, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and the sound editing, it's like that that very classic someone being stabbed, like, slicing <laughs> sound. Yeah. Um, Tommy lives through this, seemingly, and starts to stumble away. And this is where sort of the the magical element of his death comes into play, which takes thankfully takes away some of the gruesome, like gory nature of it. He still got stabbed, and it still looked like it hurt and was horrifying. But they managed to kind of take the edge off of this a little bit with what happens next. Yeah, Tommy doubles over, Vin's vomiting hay, and turns into the scarecrow, or becomes a new scarecrow. Yeah, it's not clear. Did Harold like? Was Harold then free to wander off into right. the world as a man? Never made, <laughs> never yeah, so made maybe, clear. Yeah, maybe Harold used to be just a teenager and he was taken. You know what I mean? Maybe that's the thing. It mm-hmm. seems like, yeah, there's some more layers to this that need to be unpacked in even scarier stories to tell in the daylight. <laughs> it's gonna be, of course, it's going to be more scary stories to tell in the dark, right? Right, right. <laughs> the next day at school, all the kids discover that Tommy has gone, has mysteriously gone missing and is nowhere to be found. They go to his farm and find the scarecrow wearing his Letterman jacket and realize, oh no, the story came true. Yeah, it's it's Stella who motivates this. Stella is like, guys, I know that he just disappeared, and maybe that's a normal thing, because they're like, listen, he wanted to go shoot commies, maybe he just enlisted early. And she's like, that's all fine and everything, but can we go to his farm and check? It's her motivation. And so when they get there, she's like, this is exactly what happened in the book. And that's when they start to put together the clues. Stella immediately realizes what's up. The other kids... Needs some convincing. Uh, but later that same night, Stella's at home. The book begins writing another story. This time it is The Big Toe. And it's being written about Augie, the, the Dykus kid. Uh, we cut to Augie at his house eating what looks like an entire pot of Brunswick stew. Stella Wait, and... Wait, I'm sorry, can I... What's... You say Brunswick stew? Is Brunswick stew a real thing? What I heard. That? I've heard of it from Homestar Runner. You get an iron cup of Brunswick stew. <laughs> yeah, Brunswick stew is a real thing. It's their recipes yeah. on, on Google. Oh, okay. It's like <laughs> tomato paste and beans. 
yeah, yeah, I don't like, know who Mr. Brunswick is who invented it, but it's it's sort of it's almost like a cross between like a vegetable soup and like a chili. Oh, okay, I gotta try that. I would after watching this movie, I could not try it. Well, that this, was a toe uh, in it. Right, right, but I would I wouldn't be able to divorce the two in my head. <laughs> this was the I've never been watching a movie and almost thrown up. Like oh, I've watched movies is... that disturbed me, and I was like, I can't keep watching this. And I've watched. Uh, Cheyenne watched the the new Suspiria a while back, and there's like a disemboweling scene in that, and the person's still alive. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to watch this. This has disturbed me. This has ruined my day. And like for three days, every now and then, I just be like, ugh. It ruined disemboweling for you. This is what did it more than that. Like watching this scene made me actually want to throw up in the. Now I'm fine, Jeez. but in the moment, I was like, I think I'm gonna vomit. So this story is being transcribed. Stella is seeing it and is frantically trying to warn Augie via walkie-talkie. But Augie, of course, dumbass Augie, is just so immersed, eating eating this stew straight from the pot. <laughs> cold! He's eating it cold from the pot. <laughs> he doesn't even notice, and we see him we see him scoop out with his spoon and in, in the, the world's biggest big toe and yeah, just it's... shove it straight into his mouth. And it is... <laughs> Yes, it is goddamn revolting. He bites down on it. It's oh, it's so bad. Uh, it's great. Real <laughs> it is the fucking sound sick. Like you hear, you hear like the sound of like a like a toenail crunching or something. It's it sounds like the sound effects used in like a Kit Kat commercial as you're watching him like bite into this toe. And that's the moment when he like spits it out, and there's an eyeball on the floor because he spills the stew everywhere. I'm, uh, now I'm actually about to throw up again. You'd think this would be horrifying enough, but no. If you've read the actual scary story, you know that there is a human attached to this toe, or there was Not attached, at one point. but emotionally attached. As soon as he spits out the toe, a gaunt, ghostly woman appears in his house and chases him all about wanting her toe back. Uh, eventually, the ghost corners him in his bedroom and drags him under his bed, presumably straight to hell. <laughs> Hey, can I make an Are You Afraid of the Dark aside with this? Sure. Yes. Um, and I think, I mean. No, that's th- not what this podcast is oh, okay, about. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> not what we do no, here. Just no, the whole ahead. thing. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the tale itself is like, you know, it's one of those folklore tales that was kind of just remade into a bunch of different stories to begin with. And and so I, I kind of felt like very, it was, there, there was very, there's a lot of similarities to uh, uh, Laughing in the Dark with this. With yeah. This yeah, I thought that with the pot of stew. Yeah, he's sitting. Like the, he's home like the big alone. Pot of stogies. Yeah, he's home alone. His parents aren't there. He's cooking, and then, uh, you know, and then there's this unseen force trying to get something back from him in in his house. So yeah, I just couldn't help but think of Zebo. I thought yeah, of the that, stew connection, but I didn't put. The, I didn't realize how similar those scenes are. That's really interesting. Yeah, the fact that like the antagonist is coming in saying like who's got my big toe in the same sort of like cadence as the give me back my nose like it's almost the same number of syllables and everything totally give it back yeah yeah so this is uh this ends up being one of if not the most terrifying maybe this whole story the big toe thing is probably i think the scariest part of the whole movie would you guys agree with that no way dude we are not Mm. there yet oh see for me like him eating the toe, disgusting. And then he's running from this corpse. He goes and hides under his bed. And it's like, 
they film it in such a way they're really playing with your expectations. Like, the door to his bedroom is open. He's hiding under the bed watching. You're waiting for the thing to walk into the room. He looks away, and you're like, oh, when he looks back, it's going to, like, he's going to see the foot just right there, and he's going to scream, and it's going to jump out at him. And it never does that. Like, it just edges you with this, like, really cliche horror stuff that doesn't happen. He then, like, says, okay, I'm going to peek out from under my bed. And he's, like, halfway out from under the bed. And you're like, this is when it's going to get him. And it doesn't. And he starts to look up onto his bed. And you're like, it's going to be on his bed waiting for him. And it's not. And then all of a sudden, like, this thing that is under the bed with him grabs him. And it is the scariest image to me. The face of the corpse looks so much like, uh, it, I think it's... Probably the, is the, is there an is this the illustration from the book that I'm thinking of? Yeah, it's that's it's that woman, that gaunt woman with the the I guess yeah, like missing the, eyeball or whatever, the melting face kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so the kids they get to Augie's house just too late. They discover that he has gone missing, and now Stella and Ramon are both completely convinced that every night a story will be written. One of the kids will die, and that sort of like. The moment when Augie disappears is when they say, this wasn't just Tommy running away from town. This is a real thing. We have to solve it. And the rest of the movie is sort of them figuring that out and putting that plan into action. As they're picked off one by one, all the kids who went into the haunted house. Yeah. And the very next night, it turns out the victim is Chuck's preppy older sister. What was her name? Ruth. Ruth. Ruthie. Ruth. Who was uh, who was Tommy's unfortunate date that evening? Ruth is getting ready for the big dance. I guess for some reason the school is having their big dance like two nights after Halloween. Uh, she discovers a pimple on her face, or I guess she assumes it's a spider bite. But when she goes to yeah. try and pop it in another gross body horror scene, it explodes, mm-hmm. releasing hundreds and hundreds of spiders all over the girl's bathroom. Uh, she does not die from her, her injuries. The book does not succeed in killing her, but she is uh, carted off straight to the loony bin. <laughs> <laughs> I really, this is another one of those moments where I wish I got a little bit more of the storytelling there. Like, what happens that we don't see? What happens where she gets, like, they go, man, this girl popped a big-ass zit on her face, and she's like, no, spiders everywhere, and like, oh, she popped a big-ass zit and went crazy. Better cart her off. Like, yeah, how did she end up in the in the loony bin, as you say? I guess it's, I, I can't remember exactly, I think maybe she's the only one who can see the spiders, I mean, she and the audience. Mm. Because I mean, her brother definitely in, can, because he throws the bucket of water on her. He knows that okay, the spider... Okay, well, may, maybe the other people can see. Then why is she taking the loony bean? Clearly, she was attacked by a thousand spiders. Like I don't think anyone except for their group saw the spiders, maybe. And since everyone else bailed because they have, you know, more pressing matters, um, I think that... Who knows? Maybe that's it. Maybe all the spiders disappeared, and so they said, well, this is obviously just a crazy girl who injured herself, and, and we have to protect her from herself. So we've had we've had three good scares at this point. Three excerpts mm-hmm. from the book that they've executed pretty well. And now yeah, we enter so. the slow part of the movie. We get yep. Eli one of your favorite scenes in any sort of Are You Afraid of the Dark episode? A trip to the library. <laughs> Love me a good trip to the library. They decide that they need to figure out the story of Sarah Bellows so that they can stop her. And so they want to research and find out everything they can about her, which means, as John referenced earlier, it's time to hit the microfiche. Yes. <laughs> Yay, microfiche. We learned the full story <laughs> that uh, that Sarah's... What is the family's name again? 
Bellows. The Bellows. The Bellows family owned a local paper mill that kind of put this town on the map. Uh, but they dig a little bit deeper and discover that maybe not everything was as it seems with this family. They mm-hmm. decide they need to uh, go to the local mental hospital, the I guess. Asylum. The local, yeah. the loony bin, and mm-hmm. try to find any record they have on Sarah Bellows. This scene takes way too long. It's way too drawn out, and most of it isn't interesting. Um, there are two things that happen here. Uh, Stella and Ramon go down into the basement where they find a wax cylinder recording of Sarah Bellows being given electroshock therapy by her own brother, who is a doctor at the hospital. And she is saying, you know, you, I'm not crazy. I'm not doing anything wrong. I didn't kill those kids. You guys killed those kids. Her family owned a mill and she's saying that the mill poisoned the water with mercury, that there was an accident and that the mill poisoned the water with mercury, and the family is trying to cover it up by blaming her, and her brother's like, fuck you, and he electrocutes her. You know, that's when her psychic powers seem to kick in or something, and she starts talking directly to Stella and Ramon through the wax cylinder, and she's, like, telling them what is happening in the other part of this scene, which is Chuck did not want to go down to the basement because he's been having nightmares about a red room, and he he thinks he's going to be the next one to die. In a yes. panic... He just kind of ran off into the hospital and is now lost and alone in a labyrinth of hallways when the security lights turn on and the hallways turn completely red. And what I will say about this scene before I hand it off to you guys is if you really enjoyed the scene with Tommy, then I have good news for you. This is the exact same thing. They've just changed the monster (laughs) and changed the location. But basically, this this, uh, movie really only has a couple of tricks in its bag, and it's recycling them right here. Right. Well, I would say they raise the stakes from that scene, because this is, yeah, essentially the same scene. It's a kid running through mazes, and he sees this monster everywhere he goes, but... This time, the creature is infinitely more terrifying and off-putting. What is the name of this creature in the books? Is, is, is there, like, a, an official canonical name for this? The creature is listed on Wikipedia as the Pale Lady, uh-huh. who is this kind of rotund, like, incredibly pale lady in a, in a white hospital gown. Sheet. Yeah. With this terrifying Stephen Gamel expression, like a, a smile that's too wide and a face that's really uncanny, like a bloated corpse. It lo- she looks like a cross between, like, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and the girl from The Ring. <laughs> that is spot on. Can I stop you then? Can I ask you guys a question yeah. then? So you guys yeah. have seen The Ring. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember in The Ring where there's a scene where they're going to investigate this first, this woman, and they go, they break into a mental hospital and find these mm-hmm. documents Showing mm-hmm. the girl who's supposed to be innocent, she turns out to be evil. Does, yep. that, does that sound familiar then? Yep. <laughs> okay. Cause like, yeah, this whole thing is basically the ring. <laughs> yes. It's very clear that this movie has more horror roots than just the stories from which it takes its name. Yeah. But we get another very tense scene where Chuck is being t- chased by the pale lady who's getting closer and closer and closer. And then, then we get what I thought was the most disturbing part of the entire movie the pale lady eventually catches him and just slowly puts her arms around him and squeezes him and absorbs him into her stomach this feels to me a lot like the creepy pasta that would show up on the internet like 10 to 15 years ago where it was just like these weird bizarre surreal clips from japanese horror where they would have like 
created a, a very hyper-realized manga creature is what this really reminds me of. I, I wish I had a better example than that, but it just felt very much like a very strange moment from a Japanese horror that had been, and, you know, we referenced the ring here, but even stranger than that, like the absolutely like bizarre Junji Ito kind of stuff uh, dropped into the middle of this movie. And I wasn't scared of it. I know that Dyke is this, this disturbed you the most. Is that correct? Yes. I thought this was the scariest, most nightmare inducing part of the movie for me. To me, it took too long to get there and like not enough was, it was a very slow scene. And for some reason, the look of this creature, like in the moment, did not do anything to scare me. But they, I do appreciate how absolutely insane it is. They make the mistake of showing you one close-up shot, or like a medium shot, of the pale lady, where you see her actual face and stuff. It would have been better if they had kept it wide and kept her appearance kind of vague. Yeah, I, I agree. John, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I agree with you on the on the repetition of like the chase and whatnot. It's always there, but I think I think it was amped up a little bit by it's almost like it was almost like there's like multiple versions of her in a way. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, it returns, you know, looking down three halls and sees her down every single every single way. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think it was a little almost. It, it had that weird Eastern fantastical horror Mm -hmm. element to it so uh they find evidence that chuck has been absorbed by the pale lady and then they get what arrested is that what happens next they get arrested right before they can delve deeper into what happened to chuck ramon is arrested because it's revealed that he is a draft dodger we finally learn his backstory and learn that uh he has been trying to outrun the law He's taken away. We learned that uh, what happened was his brother went off to Vietnam. There's been a lot of Vietnam references in this movie, and we'll, we'll come back to that again in a few minutes. But yeah, he's been dodging the draft, but finally the loss caught up to him, and he goes to jail. And he tells Stella that the reason he's been running away is because his brother went off to fight and came back in pieces. Yeah, pretty, pretty dramatic once again, to ha- I mean, at this point, I've accepted that this is not a movie for children, but in my head, it still is. And that's a very, like, harsh reality to hit someone with in a movie based on a kid's book. And this couldn't have come at a worse time because now the book is writing a story about Ramon and something that, I guess, terrifies him. The Jangly Man. The Jangly Man in, another sh- in yet another <laughs> shocking scene. The next of many. So they're locked in this police cell with a single guard looking after them when suddenly we hear something fall down the chimney because I guess this is a police station with a big open fireplace. <laughs> yeah. Right in the middle of it. I haven't seen that. Uh, we hear something fall down the chimney. It turns out it is a severed arm and in quick succession, a whole sack of severed body parts uh, come down the chimney culminating with a big, <laughs> wet, human, dismembered human torso, which I thought was awesome. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to yeah, sugarcoat super cool. it. <laughs> <laughs> this is like 80s levels of like gruesome watching yeah. all of these body parts. Yeah, have you guys... Uh, speaking, I really... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go oh, ahead, I was please. saying, speaking of, you were just saying the 80s. Um, have you guys ever seen the Monster Squad? Yes. Okay, so this this reminded me of the when the the Wolfman... I mean, spoiler, spoiler alert for this 1986 movie. Uh, when the Wolfman <laughs> gets blown up by dynamite and then it comes back together. Like it's all eaten in different yeah. pieces and it absorbs and comes back together. 
Yeah, it actually is really similar to that. I hadn't thought of, of that, but that's a good comparison. Again, maybe a deliberate reference on their part, actually. That is exactly what happens. These body parts assemble themselves into a huge, terrifying man called the Jingly Man. The guard, the one police guard uh, tries to stop him and gets his neck graphically broken on screen. My favorite part of this scene is when the uh, the sheriff, when the Jingly Man's head rolls down out of the chimney, it says something insane. Like, something nonsensical and insane, and I can't even remember what it is. But he tied Doty Walker. Yeah, for some reason. Which and is... The like, sheriff- which is- from the book i understand the sheriff says like are you kidding me or like <laughs> what it's it's something so funny like that. he's like oh you've got to be kidding and then he just pulls his gun out and unloads like <laughs> nine rounds into this head before the body assembles itself and murders him i kept hoping this would be where we got our one pg-13 f-bomb <laughs> yeah yeah it, this earned an f-bomb it most do- assuredly doesn't happen um, but i was i was hoping for it tragically it does not this is another scene that is like shockingly gruesome the 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 kids are trapped in very cliche old jail jail cells that are just like iron bars um the body of this sheriff has been thrown against the bars and now stella is trying to get the keys from it while that's happening the jangly man is breaking his own bones to push through the bars into ramon's cell we watch the skin on his face split as he crushes his own skull between two iron bars and then puts himself back together and saying those words i'm like still shocked by how insane it is again it's awesome (laughs) Uh, as this is happening stella manages to fish the keys to the cell from the dead guard's pocket uh, manages to release herself and Ramon just in time, and they make a run for the old mansion so they can try to confront the ghost of Sarah and set all of this right. Yeah, the kids split up. Uh, Ramon has the so plan that they can he... do more damage that way. Exactly. <laughs> Ghostbusters reference. Uh, Ramon decides that he's going to just go on the run from the Jangly Man and try to deal with him so that the Jangly Man can't get to her. So Stella heads to the house. Ramon has a car chase scene with this monster where he like smashes it in between a police car and an 18 wheeler it's pretty awesome yep um the jangly man has to rip himself apart to escape from being pinned between the two cars meanwhile stella is back at the bellows house and she gets somehow sucked back in time in a very guillermo del toro sort of like uh what, what's the crimson peak kind of way and uh this reminded me and, and this reminded me of the tale of, was it the tale of the Night Nurse? The very last episode where we see a kid transported back into the point of view of, like, a ghost character or an older character. Anyway, I got yeah. vibes from that in this scene where Stella is transported back in time and she's seeing things from the point of view of Sarah as she tries to escape her crazy brother and... I guess his equally crazy associate associates who try to capture her. This actually reminded me of the Peter Jackson movie, The Frighteners, oh, uh, with totally. Michael J. Fox. Yeah, there's a scene where they're in a hospital and they keep like the hospital is haunted, and Michael J. Fox's character sort of has like a uh, a sixth sense ability to see ghosts, and so when he walks into this hospital, he keeps getting transported back in time to the moment when all of these people were murdered, and it, it's also got a lot of those vibes to it. And like I said crimson peak as well it, there's a lot of of influences here and i think it works pretty well i wanted to chime in on the frighteners as well i also thought of the frighteners with this movie um with with uh specifically i guess the first realization i had of it was when they were in the high school after the spider attack 
and the girl sees yeah sees the shadow kind of forming on the wall yeah and yeah it's yeah. straight up frighteners love that movie so we have these two parallel climaxes happening where the jangly man is chasing ramon through the house trying to kill him Speaking of Guillermo del Toro references, I kept waiting for the part where he jumped into a mech and <laughs> killed it that way with a big sword. <laughs> Did not happen. Um, no. While Ramon is is narrowly avoiding being killed by the jangly man, Stella eventually finds herself back in the present, down in the basement in Sarah's room. And Sarah finally reveals herself in all her ghostly glory. And Stella basically just gives her a stern talking to and says, stop terrorizing my friends. She tells Sarah the ghost that she will tell her story and let the world know that Sarah was not the one that poisoned the water and killed all those kids, but only on the condition that she stops killing people. And Sarah Sarah, uh, gives a very therapeutic scream. She just like rage screams into the void so that she will feel, feel better. And then she lets everybody go. Yep. The jingly man disappears. And Sarah and Ramon just leave the house, and it seems like everything's okay. We get a bit of an epilogue where we see Ramon go off to war. He he stops dodging the draft, and we see him being shipped off. And Stella tells us via narration that she ended up writing a story based on Sarah's experience. Some people believed it, some people didn't. But either way, the hauntings stopped, and now she's on a new mission to try to bring her friends back with the power of Sarah's magical book. And that is where the movie ends. Q Lana Del Rey. Lana Del Rey theme song. <laughs> Lana Del Rey theme song. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if this if this movie had been made, I think, even just a couple of months later, that would be Billie Eilish doing this cover of Season of the Witch at the end. I think uh, Guillermo del Toro is, like, a fan of Lana Del Rey and vice okay. versa. I, I want to say there was some article I saw that talked about, like, the weird connection between the two of them. So it, it might actually be that this was, a, like, a personal favor that one of them was doing for the other. Who knows? So that but is... That is uh, that is scary stories to tell in the dark. So now I think now that we've run through the story, there's a there's so much more to this movie than I expected in terms of like the politics of this movie, the what it tries to say through the setting and the characters. Where do we even want to start here? I mean, let's talk about it on a purely superficial level first. Guys, did you enjoy this movie as a sort of fun horror movie? I enjoyed everything. I enjoyed the first third of it and the last third of it. It really drags in the middle, aside from that one scene with the pale lady. Uh, But as a PG-13 horror movie, I enjoyed this uh, a whole hell of a lot more than I expected to. You talked about the the storytelling in this movie and how it's not an anthology film versus linear film. And I think once you figure out how this is going to shake down where night where these kids are going to get picked off one night at a time, for me, that kind of hurt the pacing a little bit because yeah. by then you realize, like, okay, well, we're clearly going to have to sit through, like, three more of these before we get to the climax. Yeah. And not to say that those sequences where we do see the kids get picked off were poorly done or anything, but it's you do feel like you're just kind of waiting on your hands. Like, you know where we're going, and it's just a matter of waiting to get there. There are kids literally saying, I'm going to die next. Yeah. And they're right. <laughs> so, like, there's a level of suspense that is taken away from this. And I actually remember thinking, uh, after the spider scene, 
with Ruth in the bathroom, I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how much more I would like this if it actually were a miniseries. If any network had picked this up and said, we are going to turn this, we're going to expand this, it's going to be longer, every episode you know at least one child is going to die, you don't know how it's going to happen, like... But you've got the promise of you're going to get one true scary story and wrapped around it is going to be a group of kids trying to stop it from happening. And we know that by the end of it, they will have done that. But in between, you're just going to get episode after episode after episode of insane horror. I wonder if I would have liked that better. Yeah, that could have worked. I I agree. Because I don't necessarily think like maybe I wanted the anthology storytelling. But to be honest, I mean, maybe they worked in that sort of an introductory thing for kids who you know those stories are new to you when you're a kid and that's sort of what was what what yeah. Force was trying to do is kind of introduce these classic stories to kids but i don't think maybe they don't hold up on their own it's just like you know as a as a as an episode of a show like the hook you know i mean there's just not much yeah. of a big yeah. story there it's more about the twist so i agree i think maybe like i maybe this approach is kind of actually good to kind of make it like almost like a uh, what is it? Scooby Doo's Mystery Squad or whatever. Um, kind of trying. To... Yeah, like a monster of the yeah, week kind so of maybe thing. That, that could work. Yeah. So let's actually now, Dykus, get into what you were kind of itching to talk about there, which is the social and political elements of this, and we can hit on them, you know, however long we need to. But let's give it at least some attention here. This movie is set literally in the days running up to and the night of the nixon election yes during the vietnam cl- the climax the of draft. this movie takes place on election night and building up to it there's a lot of nixon imagery and a lot of talk of vietnam and i'm not i'm still just trying to figure out what this movie had to say about both of those things i, I want to first touch on like Tommy and Ramon, the two characters who are directly, like, kind of linked to the military. This is the only movie I can think of where the the guy who voluntarily signs up for the military is the villain, and the guy who's dodging the draft is the hero. I just feel like that's yeah. a, an interesting choice for them to make. And I'm not trying to, like, take sides in that, in that debate. It's just, like, it's very rare to see a movie where, like, the guy who signs up to go fight is... That's used to characterize him as, like, a douchebag. I mean, this movie, it's not overt about this, but it's very clear that the creators of this were opposed to the Vietnam War, that they were opposed to Richard Nixon. You say that. You say it's not overt. There is also, there's the point where all through the movie, there's this omniscient, disembodied radio DJ voice that will chime in and sort of tell you, you know, set the scene. At one point, like... Two-thirds of the way through the movie, on election night, the voice comes in and says, Hey, all you cool cats, go out and vote tonight, and don't support the war in Vietnam. <laughs> That's true. That In that moment, it is over. Uh, yeah, I guess, like, the only characters who ever discuss this, it's like, the characters in this movie are painted as either good characters or bad characters, and... There is, like, one bad character who supports the war, and there is a sheriff who arrests our heroes and is seemingly racist and arrests the character for being a draft dodger. And, like, the good guys are actively avoiding the war, are in opposition to the war. There's no conversation where people just get together and say, the war is bad, and if you like it, you're bad. But 
it's just peppered throughout and that's fine to have those opinions but like how do they tie those like what's the connective tissue between scary stories and the vietnam war i don't totally know the answer to that, yeah, that that's what i wanted answer. to ask you guys like there's clearly the, clearly they had some sort of idea there of like oh man this is what was really scary was mm. nixon and vietnam but like and I was reading, I'm on the Wikipedia article, one of the criticisms of this movie that I saw from a critic was that they didn't go far enough with that. Yeah, I think that's accurate. John, what were, I mean, like, what were your opinions of these elements of it? Well, I put a, I'm on, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Letterboxd. Um, it's like yeah. a movie re, a movie review, like, kind of website slash app. And my the first thing I wrote on my very concise review of the movie was, the first thing I think of when I think of scary stories to tell in the dark is Richard Nixon. <laughs> like, yep. it was just like, Clearly. I was just like, what? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I like you said, I, I don't mind there being like a sub, subtext to it. Um, and uh, like the historical thing d- d- didn't bother me overall. But yeah, usually you, you want to see like a connective tissue there between yeah, what's the the you know what's the inside and the outside the act, the outside action and like what they're trying to say and it just yeah I don't I didn't see what the purpose of bringing Richard Nixon and the war into it was. Was so, this movie trying yeah, to yeah. say something about contemporary politics by using Nixon and you know framing it on election night and using Nixon becomes this kind of like boogeyman. You know he's not directly in the story although that would have been funny. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. What? Instead of the jangly man falling down the chimney, it's just Richard Nixon. I am not a crook. <laughs> the, the kid's like, I'm the one who's next, and I know what it's going to be. It's something that I'm very afraid of. And it's like, you just told us what you're afraid of, man. It's the Vietnam War. I would have loved a Futurama-esque Nixon just gleefully yeah, terrorizing it's, people. It's the head of Richard Nixon that falls down the chimney. Oh <laughs> And the body of Spiro Agnew. <laughs> Nixon's back. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, they, they never really do a good job of delivering on that part of it. And I, I do like that they, they I, you know, it's nice to see them be like, hey, let's talk about opposition to, like, political monsters and, right. like, terrible presidents and yeah. stuff like that. But they don't really say anything about it beyond that. And they're not saying anything about our president. They're saying it's it's as though Del Toro just has these, like, pent-up feelings deep inside of him that he's never found a way to get out. And he's like, you know what? Today's the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let that, that Scary Stories in Town Dark movie be my, uh, let me get the thing out about Richard Nixon I've had all these years, right? Yeah, this was a burner movie for him. So he's like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm glad someone's finally kicking Nixon around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I mean, maybe I mean I'm assuming like was this a successful box office? Uh, I'm on the Wikipedia article, and according to that, it says it made 73 million off of oh, a wow. 25 to 28 million dollar budget. So, okay, yeah. oh, okay. relative so, to its budget, totally it did wrong. okay. But I don't know if it's going to be enough to justify a, a sequel. Right. So that's what I was going to ask. So maybe in a sequel, which would take place, I guess, a year or two in later, Vietnam. maybe maybe Nixon will have more of a. <laughs> reason to be in there i don't know setting ramon is literally in vietnam in the sequel oh yeah that'd be great (laughs) and it ain't me starts playing right yeah (laughs) the sequel to this is just like apocalypse now or something yeah well we got we thought the me tai doty walker was scary jeez (laughs) what did you guys think of the casting in general and 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 let's talk about like the production sort of elements of the movie hmm 
I thought everyone did okay. There was no one whose performance stood out to me as being especially bad. <laughs> like, that's usually what I'm... Uh, what draws my attention more than anything else is, like, a really awful performance. I thought everyone in this movie did fine. Yeah, yeah I think fine is fine is probably the, the area where it hits for me as well. I thought the actress who played Stella, you know... It's, it's a challenge to put the weight of this entire movie on a young actor's shoulders, and I... I think she did as well as you could expect. Zoe Coletti. I, didn't uh, I thought that um, maybe the weak link in the chain was the the boy playing Chuck. I also thought it was weird how little effort they put into making Chuck and his sister look even remotely related. Yeah, not even close. <laughs> like, that was a weird thing for me that they made those two siblings, but then did not bother to make them look like siblings in any way whatsoever. I guess that's fine. Um, well, I just you know I did produ- just realize there's a little bit of a foreshadowing where he's dressed up like, like a spider for Halloween. Oh, that's uh, funny. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Are there any other similar ones? Mm. There aren't. No, not that I can think of. <laughs> that's the only one. That's funny. I did see uh, when when the Augie character closes his door to get away from the corpse. Did you see that he has a uh, he has a poster on his wall of a of one of the French clowns from Commedia dell'arte that he keeps talking about. <laughs> no, I did <laughs> he, not like, notice he's, that. He slams the door and he like presses his back up against it and he's like huffing like... <gasps> and behind him, it's like this... What are they called? Poirots? Like on a unicycle, <laughs> juggling and like smiling at, out at the, at the camera. <laughs> is that a random there background was... in the... What is it? Yeah, that's my that? random observation of crap in the background. I looked to see if there were going to be <laughs> oh, any... Uh, I got to drop in the music. <laughs> I thought maybe you saw a World, a World War Three poster. <laughs> <laughs> Holy That's shit. actually why we're having you on. <laughs> I looked to see in Stella's room. I really expected to see a Stephen Gamel illustration, and I thought I saw one at one point. And they never really went back to the angle well enough where I could find it. I don't think it was, but I thought for a second that I saw like a red, black, and white mm. sort of watercolor ink illustration. And, and I'll be eager to go back and like see if I can find it another time but i'm not i'm not totally sold on that idea i feel like they would have given it more attention if they were gonna do that i know that they did make it a reference to sam getting a pet rat at some point i don't know if it was on the news or she was reading a story about it or something but they did reference another scary story yeah it's uh he ramon is reading the story that's on her typewriter oh okay yeah i i actually remember that as well you're right um, is there anything else that we need to touch on before we sort of wrap this up and ask a final question? I mean, would you guys watch a sequel to this? I totally would. Yeah. I liked it well enough that I would, yeah, I, I hope they make one even. Yeah. I, I have an interest in it. I would, I would watch a sequel. Like, I hope it does well enough to become a series. I, I think I would too. This impressed me enough that, yeah, I would come back for more. This is by no means a perfect movie. Uh, but again, I think they, it surprised me and it pleasantly surprised me with how far it went with its PG 13 rating and with the scariness of it. So yeah, I'm totally down for some more, uh, scary stories told in the dark. I think I know what your one caveat is going to be, John, but go ahead and say what you were about to say there. (laughs) No, I was going to say, well, they need to call the third one. Was it scary stories, stories three more tales to chill your bone? I think that's, is that the name of it? Um, it's yeah it, it's something about more stories to give you goosebumps from goosebumps uh, yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> i'm looking at it here and you're right it is more tales to chill your bones okay. yes i remember i remember being a kid and and there was some there was some goosebumps property that was like 
uh, even more stories to give you goosebumps or something. And I was like, this is very clearly a ripoff of what scary. St- I remember being in like third grade and be like, they're ripping off scary stories naming convention. While here. you're drinking your juice in the hood. <laughs> <laughs> I, that one took me a second. That was a good reference. <laughs> that was a deep reference. That was a deep yeah. reference. <laughs> But uh, no, I would say I, you know, with her did the whole the whole conjuring thing. I mean, if it was like super successful, I could see in like a few years, like Harold Origins. Oh or, no, I, I, I was at Barnes and like that. <laughs> no, that would. Be I was terrible. at Barnes and Noble the other day, and I was I was like, man, I'm really impressed by like how they've managed to milk the Conjuring franchise into so many. Oh my god, addition. It's like it is the Fast and the Furious of the horror universe. <laughs> the where they're second like, most how many of these things can be spin out off? there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so with all of that out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and ask you guys a question that I think we've maybe all established the answer to at this point. But uh, Dykus and John, are you scared of this? John, you want to go first? Oh, um, I am scared of this in a way. Um, I Yeah, you know, actually, you know what? I don't want to put a um, caveat on that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Is it bad to admit that I'm scared of... A movie intended for like teenagers. Nope, that's what we're here for. Um, yeah, like I'm, I, yeah. Um, no shame there. Yeah, like I said, I do think that the visuals were actually pretty. They delivered in the in the horror realm. Um, I guess they could have been even more graphic, but that doesn't you, more graphic to me doesn't necessarily mean more scary. Sometimes it actually means less scary. So um, yeah, I think it. Uh, I'm scared of this. I guess I will echo John's sentiment. Yeah, I was scared of this. I was at least more scared of this than I expected to be. Again, this movie went a lot further over the top with the body horror and the uh, kind of gruesome imagery than I expected. So, yeah, I feel confident giving this a solid yes. Eli, this is the scariest you... episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark <laughs> we've ever watched. Well, Eli, let's ask you, were you scared of this? I am definitely scared of this. Uh I'm going to be like, I'm going to totally be open about this. I get super fucking scared of shit, y'all. Like, <laughs> I watch horror movies, and like I said, I won't go walk my dog through our house to the backyard afterwards because I'm like, nah, man, like, monsters. And watching this movie gave me serious vibes about when Dykus and I were young. There was a haunted house that we, like an actual old abandoned house that we would sneak into with people. And I got flashbacks to that, and I started thinking... Man, I remember I would not go in that house by myself. The fact that this girl knows a witch is real and she's going into that witch's house by herself, like I wouldn't go into a house by myself and I knew that we were pr- we were faking the ghosts inside of it. Like I know that a house is not haunted and I won't go in it alone. They're doing some scary shit. This is scary. I'm a chicken shit. I thought about that <laughs> Absolutely too. Absolutely. This this movie speaks to the paranormal enthusiast uh, in me from, you know, high school and early college. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely scary. Um, I, you know, I have a, I have a niece who is twelve now, and another who is eight, and maybe nine next week, I think. And I always try to ask myself, like, you know, what would the younger audience think of this? And first of all, I wouldn't let anyone under thirteen watch this because there are so many boner jokes and stuff like that happening here. We didn't even talk about the boner jokes. We didn't talk about the boner jokes. There are boner <laughs> jokes in this. So I wouldn't let anyone under 13 watch it anyway. But if I was 13 years old, this would have When the jingly me. man's boner the... fell down the <laughs> chimney, it oh really God. caught me off guard. <laughs> I meant to make a joke about that exact thing earlier. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I think this is scary. Uh, 
I totally endorse people going to see this if they're looking for some scary spook-em-ups. Uh, you know, content warning, this movie deals with some weird racial issues that I'm not totally sure it earns. Um, but, and, and, and uh, you know, on top of that, it's wildly violent for a movie that is ostensibly based on a children's book. This is the most ad- adult children's book movie since, like, Where the Wild Things Are, which was not scary but was also like very much a movie that wasn't for kids despite the fact that it was based on a children's book Mm. uh and i think this this is in that same vein where it's like oh this thing from my childhood and then you go into it and go nope definitely not but i think anyone who's just looking for a good solid like like john like you said entry level horror i think it's great you know if there's always like that debate of like scary stories to tell in the dark versus goosebumps and i mean if you're gonna just take just the two movies together like put but match those up i mean this one like it just proves that scary stories to tell in the dark is better because uh i mean i actually like the goosebumps movie but i mean that movie is not scary in any way uh, guys, i think you bring up a good point yeah yeah have you guys seen it yeah you know the goosebumps movie is a lot like the goosebumps books in that it relies on comedy way more than you remember yeah and the goosebumps books sort of have some very cliche cartoonish like looney tunes-esque moments to them and the movie follows suit with that whereas scary stories has none of that in the books and there is not really any of that in the movie yeah and i i mean to, uh i have to know i did actually like the goosebumps movie i wish i was surprised i I actually like it but and also these movies also kind of have similar plots in that way too with the book that Mm -hmm. the book sort of makes stories come to life so but which is also from a goosebumps book oh which one is that oh what is it called it's got a giant pink blob monster on the cover is it the giant Uh, blob that ate everybody or something (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's the name of a story that the kid writes, oh. and, and then it comes to life. I didn't. I only um, made it to Ghost Dog. This is this is in the like eighties, I think. Sixties. <laughs> it's like somewhere between the sixties or the eighties in the Goosebumps catalog. It's very late uh, in the series before they retired. But yeah, same same plot where someone is writing something and it's coming to life. So this is a, a very old horror trope that both of these movies borrow from. Also, I wanted to say I'm glad I forgot to mention. I'm glad they don't bring yes. the other kids back at the end. They remain in the Phantom Zone. I thought that was totally a... shocked that those that those kids went straight to hell. Yep, uh, that was a ballsy move on their part. Glad they did it. Okay, we can wrap yeah. it up. Yeah, sorry. So, with all of that out of the way. Um, we are going to be, I guess, gone for a little while, aren't we? As far as we know, our next episode will be covering the Are You Afraid of the Dark revival, which is set to start sometime in October. So, yeah, we'll be gone for a few weeks, and then it's back to the grind. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, uh, allegedly, we'll have between one and three more episodes to do, uh, and then we'll be done. <laughs> so hopefully you all enjoyed these two bonus episodes in between that. John, thank you so much for coming back. It was great to have you on the show, yes. at least this last time, uh, before we wrap everything up. Great. Do you have any new books or anything that you want to plug? Hey, so due to some technical difficulties, we lost John's audio at this point. Uh, But I just want to take this moment to encourage everyone to go check out John's work. John has a pretty prolific body of horror writing online. 
He mentioned at the top of the show his book Corpse Cold, which is written and illustrated very much in the style of scary stories to tell in the dark. So if you're looking for something in that vein, if you need more scary stories in your life, uh, I definitely encourage you to check it out. Uh, he and his co-author Joseph Sullivan actually have a few horror anthology books out, if that's what floats your boat. The At the Cemetery Gates books, volumes 1 and 2. Uh, her Morning Portrait and Other Paranormal Oddities, and uh, just earlier this summer, John was one of the editors on Other Voices, Other Tombs, which features short stories from a wide variety of writers from all over the internet. So if you're looking for something spooky to read this fall, and if you're a fan of the kind of stuff we cover on this show, definitely check out John's stuff. We'll make sure to have links to John's stuff in the SoundCloud description for this episode and on our social media pages, so go check it out. Speaking of art, uh, I'm going to go ahead and plug friend of the show, Brett Wilson. Uh, Brett has been posting on Facebook illustrations, one illustration for each episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, I think the most recent one that he did was The Tale of the Secret Admirer, which, if, if you don't remember, was the story where the girl is being haunted by, like, the ghost of Two-Face from Bat- from Batman, <laughs> the guy who's got, like, the crazy burns on him, yeah. who was in love with the girl's mother. Uh, Brett has been posting really cool illustrations, and he's been sharing them with us on the uh, You Scared of This Facebook page. He has a collection of stickers for... He's doing a sticker for each of the villains, or, like, all the main villains from Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, I'm probably going to buy at least four of them myself. I, I was I had a shopping cart this morning that had Goth and Zebo and the Crimson Clown and uh, the Ghastly Grinner stickers that I thought were all awesome. So shout out to Brett for those. Brett, if you're listening and you feel inclined to make a sticker of, if you take requests, uh, I, I'm also wanting a stone throne, a campfire, and a hand holding a match just so that I can have as many sort of iconic are you afraid of the dark images as possible can you make uh, one of the zero the clown genesis game that we see in that one episode <laughs> that's in the crimson clown episode oh yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, we need a sticker that is the Genesis cartridge of the Zebos Funhouse game. <laughs> and I'll buy that for Dykus for Christmas. <laughs> I want to echo that Brett. I, I follow Brett on, on Instagram and stuff as well, just because he does cartoons. And yeah, he is also he is really good. He does a lot of cool 90s Nick stuff as well, even beyond Honor for the Dark. Yeah. Um, he's done like some Pete and Pete stuff, some Rocco's Modern Life. So yeah, he I, I approve of, of his yeah, stuff. Yeah, so shout out to Brett. I don't know. I think that uh, a lot of his illustrations started happening after we finished. He, I know he had started while we were still running, um, and he's going to have a book eventually of the Are You Afraid of the Dark illustrations. Uh, but shout out to him for his work. I really love that stuff, and I appreciate him uh, sharing it on the page. Thank you to everyone else who is still sticking with us and listening. Thanks again, John, for coming on the show. Thank you, John. Uh, and with Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And with all of that said, I hereby declare this episode of You Scared of This closed. <laughs>